I'm Elizabeth Slattery, and welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. This week, I'm joined by Ken Klukowski from the First Liberty Institute. Ken, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me, Elizabeth. So let's hit some of the SCOTUS headlines. Is Justice Clarence Thomas here to stay, or is he thinking about taking a permanent road trip across America? Ariane DeVogue of CNN wrote uh, an article asking whether the justice is considering retirement in light of what she calls his jaw-dropping opinion last week, suggesting that the court revisit its First Amendment jurisprudence related to defamation. She asks, was this a last salvo, or is the justice laying down a marker for an area he hopes the justices will reconsider while he's still on the court? So a couple of thoughts on this. First, he's only 70 years old, which by Supreme Court standards makes him a spring chicken. Um, he and Neil Gorsuch have become fast friends since the younger justice joined the court. In, in the past, Thomas often would write a concurrence or a dissent staking out a pretty bold originalist position on an issue. And Gorsuch has been joining a lot of these. Uh, even when they disagree, it seems like they're having fun doing so such as uh, their dueling opinions in Sessions versus DeMaia last term on the merits of the vagueness doctrine. And finally, DeVogue points out in her article that the general consensus among those closest to the justice, including what she calls his army of former clerks, don't see him retiring anytime soon. Ken, what do you think? Well, I think for starters, this is just the latest confirmation that no right-thinking American should ever take Supreme Court or constitutional advice from CNN. (laughs) Uh, I mean, New York Times versus Sullivan, which is what Justice Thomas was speaking about, was wrong the day it was decided in 1964. Uh, This was a garden variety uh, opinion, not jaw-dropping. I guess it's only jaw-dropping if you live on the ultra-left and think that moderate positions are extreme because that's the ultra alternate universe that you live in, and, and, and it shocks you. These are the people who think that Hillary Clinton should have won by a 30-point spread because no one they know voted for President Trump. So surely, you know, these numbers can't be right. I, I At the last five cocktail parties I went to, I must have spoken to 30 people, and none of them voted for president. <laughs> yeah, that's because you're a coastal elite uh, and one who evidently doesn't understand constitutional law either. Uh, in this case, as Justice Thomas explained— He said, look, it is state law that creates defamation. It is state law that determines what the elements are for slander and libel. Uh, The Supreme Court in 1964 said that if you're a public figure, somehow the First Amendment uh, uh, requires that people be able to slander you and that you can't sue them unless you can prove that they knew what you they were saying were false or that they were being completely reckless. And even then, you have to prove it by clearing convincing evidence in court, which is just shy of the beyond a reasonable doubt mm-hmm. that we require to throw people in prison in a criminal case. And that somehow the country went 175 years without ever realizing this spectacular rule in the First Amendment. And so it, Thomas is saying, look— There's nothing in the Constitution about it. We should leave the American people to decide these things through democracy and not presume to be their babysitters. (laughs) CNN calls that jaw-dropping and then says, well, this is a clear – perhaps this is a clear sign that he's retiring. My goodness. I I think Justice Thomas says these things – all the time. You know, if she had read this 10 years ago, she would have thought he was retiring 10 years ago. So I don't see it at all. And I'll say this, hopefully the justice is listening, is – I sure hope he's not retiring because we need him. America needs him. I would be very excited if I were Justice Thomas that the court is moving in a direction 
where he might be able to help lead a majority of the court uh, in extraordinary uh, restorations of key constitutional principles that Mm -hmm. he has been a champion of all of his professional life. And so I, I don't think it's true that he's leaving, and I sure hope it's not, because Justice Clarence Thomas is a national blessing, and we need many more years for him as a leader of the Supreme Court. No one has earned retirement more than Justice <laughs> Thomas, but we all need to hope he doesn't take it soon. A national treasure indeed. Well, moving on to the orders and opinions from this week, there were two Ninth Circuit bench slaps from the Supreme Court. First up in Yovino versus Rizzo. This was a per curiam opinion, which is where uh, it, the opinion is not under any one justice's name, uh, finding that judges can't rule from beyond the grave. So the Ninth Circuit counted the vote of Judge Stephen Reinhardt and attributed an opinion to him that was delivered on April 9th of last year, despite the fact that Reinhardt had died on March 29th of that year. The Supreme Court said that this went against well-established judicial practice, federal statutory law, and judicial precedent. Uh, And the Ninth Circuit could not allow a deceased judge to exercise the judicial power of the United States because, quote, federal judges are appointed for life, not for eternity. Great line. So the second bench slap of the week, uh, Nutraceuticals Corp. versus Lambert. This was a unanimous opinion by Justice Sotomayor reversing the Ninth Circuit, finding that it lacked authority to extend a 14-day deadline for reconsideration of class decertification in a class action lawsuit. So Troy Lambert filed a class action suit against Nutraceutical, claiming its marketing of a dietary supplement violated uh, California's consumer protection law. A district court decertified the class Uh, And then pursuant to Federal Rule of Civil Procedure 23F, Lambert had 14 days to ask the Ninth Circuit for permission to appeal that decertification. Instead, he filed a motion for reconsideration with the district court, which was denied. And then he petitioned the Ninth Circuit for permission to appeal well beyond the 14-day deadline. The Ninth Circuit said, sure, why not? Uh, And a unanimous Supreme Court said that Rule 23F isn't subject to equitable tolling, and the Ninth Circuit lacked authority to extend the 14-day deadline. So not a great week for the Ninth Circuit at the Supreme Court. Moving on to uh, the signed opinions, uh, Madison versus Alabama. This was a 5-3 by Justice Kagan because Justice Kavanaugh did not participate in the case. Alito, Thomas, and Gorsuch dissented. So in this opinion, the court held that a capital defendant's severe dementia could render him mentally incompetent, which would prohibit his execution. The court remanded to the Alabama... Alabama state courts to reconsider the defendant's competency uh, and whether he has a rational understanding of why the state seeks to execute him. So in his dissent, Justice Alito explained that this wasn't the question the court was had agreed to hear in the case. Uh, the question was whether the Eighth Amendment prohibits execution of a defendant who doesn't recall committing his crime, not whether lo- the lower court rejected the defendant's claim because it erroneously believed dementia couldn't provide a basis for incompetence. Alito would have digged the case, which is dismissed as improvidently granted. Any thoughts on that one, Ken? Uh, it's um we'll we'll take them in reverse order i mean i'll generically say that i that i i i agree with uh justice alito's uh take there that 
that isn't the issue that was being presented to the court. And why in the world did they have to squirrel it away in this in this different direction? Uh, and we have seen increasing uh, concerns regarding departures of the Eighth Amendment from its uh, original public meaning. And and regardless of the context, again, that should that should concern people because state legislatures are perfectly capable of establishing the criteria for their own death penalty laws. Mm-hmm. And the question is, what was cruel punishment or unusual punishment? As that term was understood when the American people adopted it in the Eighth Amendment, uh, and the reality is many of the many of these decisions have been driven by justices who just opposed the death penalty. <laughs> and despite the fact that every single state had the death penalty when they also voted to ratify the Eighth Amendment, you just have a block of liberal justices that keep on insisting that the Eighth Amendment makes the death penalty unconstitutional as if these lawmakers and framers of our from our founding are uh, uh, were schizophrenic uh, the um, now regarding the uh, regarding the tolling period uh, the, the rule 23f period and I know that sounds very wonkish and in the weeds the reality is that Congress has empowered the courts to adopt rules of procedure that's done through the Supreme Court and then Congress approves of them. Um, these are not advisory guidelines. <laughs> if you are a judge on an inferior court, and I emphasize the word inferior because that's what the Constitution says. That's not my commentary. It is the commentary of the supreme law of the land. It is that you are utterly subordinate to the decisions of the rulemaking authority. And when they say 14 days, that they does mean not. It. <laughs> yeah, that doesn't mean fourteen days unless you decide you don't feel like it that day. You know, it's the law should not depend on what you had for breakfast or whether you think that your bosses got it correct because they are your bosses. Your job is to stick to the rules that they write, not to have a. But I really want to, so let's be nice about this exception to the rules. <laughs> uh, the um, before that, the procurium one, yes, Stephen Reinhardt was the liberal lion of the Ninth Circuit. And Indeed. I think it's important to note regarding that decision, and I'm glad it was unanimous, is this was not just a three-judge panel decision, which is mm-hmm. what 99% of the federal appeals are. This is the uh, uh, the full court sitting on bunk. Now, in every other federal appeals court, that means all the regular service judges. In the Ninth Circuit, because it is so overlarge and should have been split into at least two circuits yes. pre- 29 judges total. 29 active service. And then when you count the senior judges, you're at 40. Yeah. And uh, because it is so ridiculously overlarge and covers roughly a quarter of the United States, which Mm -hmm. should also worry people, uh, uh, when they have a non-bank court, it's 11 judges. This case was something akin to a 6-5 case. So, I mean, Reinhardt's vote here was dispositive. Yep. Of the case. The decisive vote. It yeah. was it was the deciding vote. I love that line about they're appointed for life, not for eternity. <laughs> uh, is uh, is the reality is judges can change their mind at the last minute. Judges can. I've I've when I've when I've clerked, I have seen decisions. I can't ever talk about them publicly, uh, but uh, but it's it happens here. It happens at the Supreme Court mm-hmm. that uh, that that there are judges who, in close cases, and and often when a case goes on bonk, it is a close case that they might see something in the final version of the opinion that they decide they just can't go with, and they reverse their vote until the decision is handed down. 
Nothing is set in stone. Mm -hmm. And so I I agree that this was a misuse of the judicial power. This was, again, the Ninth Circuit saying, well, we're going to do it because we really want to, which, again, is just a a scary attitude to have in a judge. You know, Mm -hmm. the uh, the, hey, Ma, watch this. Well, and wasn't it Reinhardt that said the Supreme Court can't catch all of our. Yes, that's a reference to where he was had a whole string of opinions that just flew in the face Mm -hmm. of Supreme uh, of a of a Supreme Court precedent in that area of law. And they kept on summarily reversing him in the Ninth Circuit on it. And a reporter asked him, they're like, why do you keep doing this? You know, the Supremes are just going to reverse you. And he said, as you just said, his response was, well, they can't catch them all. And I think, again, (laughs) Judges on inferior courts are bound to faithfully follow the law as it comes down from the Supreme Court, um, and uh, we might be entering a new era when it comes to the Ninth Circuit, perhaps. So two more opinions from this week that we'll hit on quickly before we get to the main event, which is the oral argument in the Peace Cross case. Uh, so the court decided Garza versus Idaho, a 6-3 opinion by Justice Sotomayor holding that uh, for an ineffective assistance of counsel claim, there is a presumption of prejudice when trial counsel fails to file a notice of appeal, even if the defendant had agreed to an appeal waiver as part of a plea bargain. It's the defendant's choice, not the attorney's choice, whether to appeal. That was the uh, summary of of, of her opinion. Justice Thomas dissented, joined by Gorsuch in full and Alito in part, saying that counsel make uh, the counsel here made a reasonable decision not to file the appeal because it could have jeopardized uh, the plea bargain that had avoided a possible life sentence. And by holding that this decision is a per se deficient, uh, that this decision of his was per se deficient and prejudicial, the result is a, quote, defendant always wins rule that has no basis in the original meaning of the Sixth Amendment or in relevant precedent. And then the final opinion of the week, JAM versus International Finance Corp. This was a 7-1 decision by Chief Justice John Roberts, holding that a federal law affords international organizations the same immunity from suit that foreign governments enjoy today under the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act. Uh, Justice Breyer dissented and Justice Kavanaugh did not participate in that case. So finally, the main event. There were several oral arguments this week, but I want to particularly dig into the Peace Cross case. So this is the American Legion versus American Humanist Association. And Ken, you are part of the legal team for the American Legion. Uh, This is the case where the Supreme Court has been asked to weigh in on whether a state's maintenance of a 93-year-old World War I memorial that includes a 40-foot cross known as the Peace Cross is an establishment of religion in violation of the First Amendment. So the Fourth Circuit here held that the Peace Cross violates the Constitution, concluding that the size and prominence of the cross conveys government endorsement of Christianity and the state's maintenance of the cross is an excessive entanglement with religion. One of the judges went so far as to suggest a fix to the problem would be to cut off the arms of the cross. Uh, It was a packed house at the Supreme Court uh, for this argument, and there were three lawyers arguing on behalf of the cross's constitutionality and a fourth arguing against. The justices came prepared with a lot of questions, and at times they were talking over each other and over all four of the advocates. So, Ken, let's walk through some of the key exchanges from the argument. So, first up, standing. Why can the challengers even bring this case? Justice Gorsuch pointed out that we have to tolerate each other's views in a pluralistic society, and this is the only area of the law where we allow people to sue over offense alone. Uh, That's right. The the Supreme Court uh, has for decades uh, said that 
whenever that one of the ways uh, a person suffers a personal injury that they can sue over under the Establishment Clause is if they have direct contact with, in the case of a display, Mm -hmm. direct contact with a governmental display involving religion uh, that they don't like. So essentially, uh, the, the argument on standing there becomes, okay, you are articulating an injury, one that I think certainly some people have questions about, but there's no question that uh, that, that, that is based on at least a half century of Supreme Court standing analysis mm-hmm. uh, and that, uh, and that uh, they're just – there's no reason to think the court would even reconsider that standing doctrine at this time. Uh, but it's rather to say once you are alleging that your your unwelcome contact, in this case, that you are face-to-face with this cross-shaped memorial on government land, uh, that you're going to sue over that, the issue rather becomes a question of the legal merits of mm-hmm. saying you are arguing an injury. Now we have to get to what is the correct test to determine if the Establishment Clause has, in fact, been violated. And uh, speaking of tests, there are quite a few uh, that the court has used to evaluate Establishment Clause claims. And just in this case, we have, from the four challengers, we have a variety of tests that they've offered up to the court. Neil Katyal, who was Elena Kagan's second in command uh, when she was the Solicitor General, he argued on behalf of the Maryland Commission that that owns the land where the cross is today. Um, He says the Peace Cross is constitutional under any existing test, and at the argument he Uh, He emphasized the longevity, 86 years without a challenge to its constitutionality, plus the secular purpose of memorializing World War II soldiers were key factors for why it's constitutional. Uh, Mike Carvin, who argued on behalf of the American Legion, uh, you're part of that legal team, Ken, he urged the court to adopt a test looking for government coercion or proselytization. So, for example, is the government conditioning access to government services or benefits on religious belief? On behalf of the federal government, Principal Deputy Solicitor General Jeff Wall says that the court should consider the founders' original understanding of the Establishment Clause uh, to prohibit coercion of religious belief or practice uh, and that it did not bar acknowledgement or accommodation of religion in the public sphere. And then finally, Monica Miller for the Humanist Group, um, she has a 20-factor test and says the Establishment Clause prohibits government from preferring one religion over another. And uh, Chief Justice Roberts said to, you know, to, to her test that if I were a lower court judge, I would just throw my hands up in the air. Well, you know, what do you do with this? So do you think, based on the argument, any of the justices were gravitating towards a particular test? Well, I, I would say there were two and a half lawyers arguing for the constitutionality of the <laughs> test. I think some people wondered what side Neil Katyal was on at, at times. There was an exchange right at the end yeah. where uh, where 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 Justice Kavanaugh said, well, you're advancing a couple different theories there. If we decide that under one of those approaches, the cross actually goes down, uh, wh- what do you think we should do with the cross? And he honestly seemed to struggle with the moment uh, for a moment as to whether the cross should survive, uh, despite the fact that that is unquestionably the only thing his client cares about. Mm-hmm. Uh, th- this is the same gentleman who argued Trump versus Hawaii last year, where he tried to use 
this long-standing test, a train wreck of a test called the Lemon Test from 1971, this three-part test that no one can figure out and courts <laughs> always come in opposite directions on it. Uh, and he tried to use that to get the president's travel ban struck down as unconstitutional. So evidently that's not a tool he would like to lose from his toolbox because it's been a very handy tool for the left, which he is a part of. Uh, the uh, it, it, the approaches there, I, I was very encouraged by two things I heard yesterday in oral argument. One was, as you said, when Justice Sonia Sotomayor, dealing with the humanists lawyer, that's the atheist group in the case, as, the, as Justice Sotomayor got that lawyer to unpack all the various parts of her lemon test theory and why this war memorial and countless other things need to be mowed to the ground, uh, the justice, Chief Justice Roberts did not ask a question at that point. He made a declaration. That was when he said that, well, if I was a court, a judge on a lower court, which I used to be, that's when he raised his hands and said, I would have no idea. I, I would mm-hmm. have no idea what to do with this. Mm-hmm. That was our central argument is that almost a half century has proven that the lemon test is a hopelessly subjective and unworkable test that has left this key area of the Constitution in complete disarray Mm -hmm. and that the court needs to replace it with a workable, predictable rule of decision so that all Americans, including local and state leaders here, like if they want to have a war memorial, to know where is the constitutional line here. So between the chief justice saying that and Justice Kavanaugh, once Justice Gorsuch kind of chided the atheist lawyer saying, well, counsel, we haven't used the lemon test in a long time here. And then Justice Kavanaugh jumped in and said, and isn't the fact, I'm paraphrasing here, isn't the fact that we haven't used it in a long time, doesn't that suggest we might not think it's a good test? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I think with those kind of tea leaves being shown there, I, I, am, I am guardedly optimistic that, first of all, I'm fully confident that the memorial will survive. In fact, yeah. I don't think that'll be a 5-4 decision. I think that will be a much more lopsided decision. I think even some of the liberal justices mm-hmm. are going to say that this century-old war memorial can stand. Uh, I am guardedly optimistic that there are five votes, a solid majority on the court, that agrees that the establishment clause, whether the government is establishing a religion, that the framework that they've used over the years has has led to such chaotic results that the correct way to go is what the court did in 2014 in Town of Greece versus Galloway, Mm -hmm. where they say that it really turns on the question of coercion. Is the government coercing a person? to participate in a religious activity. And so long as no citizen is being coerced, if you don't like something, go talk to your local leaders. Tell them you want them to take it down. But don't think you can go to a federal judge and make him be a wrecking ball that blasts it down and forces your local leaders to do so. This is about who gets to decide, whether democracy decides it, the voters decide it through their elected leaders, or whether unelected leaders can trump democracy. Yeah, I thought it was interesting that Justice Alito posed a a question to the lawyer for the humanist group, Monica Miller, uh, you know, saying, what kind of message will it send if if we're going to require crosses uh, across the country to be knocked down? And she fought the the hypothetical and, you know, she she never really gave him a satisfactory answer. Uh, But on the lemon test, uh, you know, Justice Scalia famously compared it to, I love the quote, a ghoul in a late night horror movie that sits up. Uh, in its grave and shuffles abroad after repeatedly being killed and buried. 
Uh, so perhaps now is the time to put the final nail in the coffin for uh, for the for the lemon test. And, and I do believe that's where we're going. And I appreciate Justice Alito drawing that out too. I mean, these are people who are sincere on the other side, but their but their mission statement is clear. It's on their website. I mean, they believe that religious faith is a is a negative influence on society, like a cancerous influence on any modern enlightened society. And they want to see all faith based references eradicated from the United States. So I mean so they're they they don't hide what their agenda is. And I think that that's what Justice Alito was getting to. Definitely. Well after seventy minutes of oral argument, it seemed to me like the justices aren't really sure what to do with this area of the law, but I, I think you're right that the, the peace cross is going to survive. So I think this will be one of those decisions where we'll expect uh, the opinion to come out by the end of June. We'll wrap up with a round of Supreme Trivia, Establishment Clause edition. I'm going to try to stump my guest, Ken. Uh-oh. Are you ready? I'm in trouble now. <laughs> All right. First question. During the peace cross oral argument this week, Justice Gorsuch referred to the lemon endorsement test as the dog's breakfast. Do you know where this phrase comes from? You know, it's funny. The lawyer sitting right next to me started talking to the person next to her about it as soon as I <laughs> saying, which brief said the dog's breakfast? Was that your brief? And so it's uh, it managing to knock me off my game as I was trying to write that in, uh, trying to write notes on it. Uh, it's, it's, I hate to be stumped regarding my own case, but I'm not <laughs> sure where the dog's breakfast comes from. I'm trying to think of a witty way to answer it, uh, but uh, but instead I'll, uh, I'll, I'll eat some humble pie for breakfast as a dog and, uh, and just say, uh, lay it on me. So I, I thought it was a very odd phrase and Justice Gorsuch used it twice and he, he seemed pleased with himself. So I wonder if he, you know, he, he thought to, uh, to, you know, thought up uh, the comparison to lemon. Anyway, it's it's British slang for a complete mess. And I guess this is Gorsuch showing the influence of his British wife and his time living in the UK. And the fact that he got a doctorate degree from Oxford yeah. in the UK. So, okay, <laughs> so he is engrafting some British principles, some foreign law principles Uh-oh. into American law that should delight our friends on the left. <laughs> All right, next question. A lot of people are familiar with the phrase that there should be a wall of separation between church and state in our country. In the Trinity Lutheran case from a few terms ago, and this was where the court ruled that a state could not discriminate against churches in a grant program, which dissenting justice wrote that this decision made the separation of church and state a, quote, constitutional slogan, not a constitutional commitment? Talking about the Trinity Lutheran case and dissent in there? Yes. Now— it, it, it's so ironic that that phrase came up because that was originally pegged only on the Establishment Clause, and that was in the 1947 case Everson versus Board of Education. It was actually a phrase that came from a private letter from Thomas Jefferson to the Danbury Baptists, which is truly ironic because Jefferson was our ambassador to France at the time and had no role in the adoption uh, of the of the Establishment Clause. Uh, all that being uh, being the case, and of course I've studied every phrase in the majority opinion in Trinity Lutheran. I believe it was Justice Sotomayor who wrote the dissent uh, joined, joined by Justice uh, Ginsburg. Uh, and so, yes, I, I thought it was interesting in terms of how they were uh, trying to, to to blur the lines between the two religion clauses in the First mm-hmm. Amendment, both the Establishment Clause and the Free Exercise Clause. Well, you are correct. And I think Justice Sotomayor might want to double check the language of the First Amendment, since, as you point out, this, uh, this language famously comes from uh, a private letter that Thomas Jefferson wrote. 
Okay, third question and final one. Former Tenth Circuit judge and leading religion clauses scholar Michael McConnell wrote a landmark article laying out six elements of establishment that the founders would have recognized as violating the Constitution. I'm going to give you four, and I want you to tell me which one is not one of his elements. Okay, first one. Mandatory attendance at a government-sanctioned church. That is one of the historical hallmarks. Second. Financial support of a government-sanctioned church with public funds. That is also a hallmark of religious establishment. By the way, everyone, you'll notice the common thread here is coercion. It is the government (laughs) making you go to church or making you give your money to pay the salary of a church that may teach things that you don't believe. Go ahead. Third one, uh, a church's exemption from generally applicable laws. Actually, that is, while there are certain historical allowances regarding churches, that is not a historical hallmark uh, of establishment. For example, churches have always traditionally been regarded as being exempt from federal taxation, and that that's not seen as a form of establishment. Mm -hmm. That is rather seen as being mandated uh, by, but that the Establishment Clause actually mandates that the government not be hostile to a church by presuming to regulate it or tax it, and that that would also violate the Free Exercise Clause, potentially. I mean, if you were to place a 100% tax on a church, you could actually take away all its money. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, I'm not going to get to the fourth one because you're right. That is that is the one that I tried See, to See, slip- you should have laid out all four and then <laughs> said which of these is not like the others, like they do in Sesame Street. Uh, and, uh, yeah. Go ahead and tell us what the fourth so, one was. So the others are prohibiting worship in other denominations or right. religions, uh, government control of a church's doctrine, structure, or personnel, use of government-sanctioned churches uh, for, for civil functions, and limiting political participation to members of the government-sanctioned church. That's right. And a perfect example of that would be one of the, next to the Bible, one, uh, uh, one of the most wide-selling books worldwide in uh, history has been The Pilgrim's Progress. That was written by John Bunyan during the years that he was imprisoned for, t- for, for preaching a form of Protestant Christianity that was at variance with the doctrine of the Church of England. And so he spent <laughs> years in prison, and that's where he wrote this book uh, that has been so widely read uh, over the, over the uh, intervening uh, uh, three and a half centuries. Well, Ken, I think you did a great job with Supreme Trivia, and thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me, Elizabeth. Thanks for listening to SCOTUS 101. Be sure to subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you listen to your podcasts, and please leave us a five-star rating if you enjoy listening. Please follow us on Twitter at SCOTUS101, and you can email us at SCOTUS101 at heritage.org with questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes. You've been listening to SCOTUS101, executive produced by Elizabeth Slattery, sound designed by Michael Gooden, Lauren Evans, and Thalia Rampersad. For more information, visit heritage.org.